I'm Isabel Khalili, and I manage podcasts for KEXP. I'd like your help shaping our plans for podcasting in 2021 and beyond. We're conducting a survey, and we want to hear from you. It will take just five to ten minutes of your time. We'll ask which of our podcasts you're enjoying and why, what could be improved, and what you'd like to hear from new KEXP podcasts in the future. Find out more and take our podcast survey today at kexp.org slash survey. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. If you ever want to get a history of the music industry, look no further than a recent article in Wired titled Big Music Needs to be Broken Up to Save the Industry. It covers how corporate power has taken over streaming, recording, ticketing, and music venues. It was written by Ron Knox, senior researcher and writer at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And he joins me now to talk about the article. Hello, Ron. Hey, Emily. How are you doing? Thanks for being here. So let's break down. You talk a lot about monopolies um, or, you know, big, big corporate power in this article. And you talk about how they are impacting the music industry. And you first talk about labels. So the top three labels here in the U.S. are Universal, Sony and Warner Music. And you write that they distribute more than 80 percent of all physical music today. And you compare that to, you know, back in the 1940s and 50s, like we didn't there weren't really any major labels. So how did the emergence of these three major labels impact the music industry in your mind? I think it's impacted the music industry in uh, a number of ways. And you mentioned a few of them. So, you know, first of all, just to kind of give a little bit of background, from the beginning of the, you know, recorded music age through the 40s and 50s, there are no major labels. There are just many record labels. They are diverse in the kinds uh, of music that they, you know, record and publish. And it took this diversity of labels to really, you know, introduce a lot of what we think of as the kind of core American music to audiences, right? So, you know, blues, jazz, R&B, and the first pangs of rock and roll all really came from this extreme diversity that existed uh, in, in the music industry, in the, you know, recorded music industry. And then, so what happened? So then, in the 60s and 70s, along with a lot of other industries in America, right, the record business started to consolidate. And you ended up with what were the big five in the early part of this millennium. And then now today, you just have the big three, which you mentioned. So, you know, why does that matter? Well, it matters, you know, first of all, because it is drastically limited the kind of music that is heard in, you know, popular formats, right? So um, on, you know, major radio stations, top 40 radio stations, uh, it's impacted the charts in a lot of different ways. You know, so what you have is this kind of homogenization of what we think of as popular music. And the reason that's bad for the industry as a whole is because popular music is the main generator uh, of revenue for the entire industry. And the more revenue that is taken up by these very kind of monotonous, what we think of as like pop music um, artists and bands, the vast majority of which are on these major labels, the less revenue there is for everyone else in the industry. That includes artists, that includes, you know, labels, promoters, uh, and so on. 
You know, you go on to say that in 2019, research group MBW found that the three major labels, again, Universal, Sony, and Warner, that, you know, they each made around $1 million an hour from streaming. And then you compare that, they go on to say that the bottom 99% of those on Spotify only made an average of $25 a year from streaming. So you have $25 a year versus $1 million an hour that these major labels are making. I mean, do you see a solution for evening out the playing field when it comes to streaming income? It's a great question, right? And I think there are certainly policy solutions. Um, You know, a really good argument to be made for more equitable reimbursement for streams, right, for music streams. So you look at what the big streaming platforms actually pay. And, you know, it's penny fractions, as the as the very common saying goes. And so, you know, there's another really great story that just came out by a reporter named David Dayan in the American Prospect that looked at the music industry as well. And, you know, he talked to a band that, that had 8 million streams on Spotify, and also sold 2,000 records of a – they did a 2,000-record run of an album, and, and they sold all of those. They earned the same amount of money from both of those things, right? Um, and neither one was enough to actually pay the bills for a band with multiple members. So I think there's a way you know, at the federal level to make sure that reimbursement for artists – um, is the same across the board and is and is equitable across the board that is that that you know that artists who make music uh, are actually getting paid for the value of their art rather than having these you know tech platforms you know most of which are monopolies by you know by some definition uh, able to able to gatekeep able to you know skim off the top uh, and so on. So you also say in your article in Wired titled, Big Music Needs to be Broken Up to Save the Industry, that antitrust laws need to be in place to prevent massive companies from taking over the music industry. And you point to a recent antitrust bill introduced by Senator Amy Klobuchar that would force some big companies to prove that a merger would be good for competition before the government would permit the merger. And speaking of mergers, in your article, you talk about Live Nation, you know, a massive concert promoter that owns the Gorge Amphitheater here in Washington State. And they acquired the ticketing company Ticketmaster in 2010. And then in 2019, the Justice Department found that Live Nation had been steering tours away from venues that refused to use Ticketmaster for years. And I'm sure a lot of those venues were small independent venues. And this is something that I had a conversation about with the local talent buyer, Mario Abata of Nectar Lounge. And I spoke with him last spring, you know, right when COVID was hitting. And I was talking to him about how are independent venues going to weather, you know, the storm, which now has been more than a year of independent venues not being able to put on shows and still having to pay super high rent. Like, how are they going to survive? And he said, you know, I, I think that big companies like AEG or Live Nation in the end might have to come in and basically buy out these venues. And so they aren't owned independently anymore. They're just a part of, you know, this bigger industry. And I guess I'm just curious what you think about that particular prediction. 
Well, I think it's um, I think it's like absolutely correct, and I think it's a serious concern. And you already saw this kind of in the middle of the pandemic, right? So these independent venues, these like small clubs, were the first to close, and they'll be the last to reopen because essentially these small clubs have to run at basically near capacity in order to, as you said, pay really expensive rent and uh, to keep the lights on, and that's something that. You know, even as the country begins to reopen from the pandemic, it's not happening immediately, right? We're not going to see, you know, shoulder to shoulder, wall to wall people in a small music venue anytime soon, I wouldn't believe. So they're in this, you know, precarious place. And then you have this organization, this organization called Save Live. And it's run by a guy named Mark Geiger, who is the co-founder of Lollapalooza and um, the former WME co-head of music and so on. And so he comes out and he says, look, I want to save these live venues. I want to make sure that, uh, that you know, they can weather the storm of the pandemic and when everything blows over, they can reopen and they can survive. That's nice. Sounds like a charitable endeavor. But the truth of the matter is that um, in order to save uh, these you know, small venues – he wanted a 51% equity stake in everyone that he and his Wall Street investors uh, put money into. So <laughs> what, you know, what looks like a charitable endeavor ends up being a corporate uh, you know, roll-up. So that's, so that's something that happened. Um, and of course, a lot of small, you know, small venue owners are saying, I'm worried that, that I'm going to get to the place where this is my only option. The same threat exists with Live Nation. Live Nation is this massive, very wealthy company. It's sitting on $2.5 billion in cash. Its stock price has never been higher. It got a $500 million uh, investment from um, a Saudi wealth fund. These are things that aren't available to independent venues. They're just not there. And... When push comes to shove, depending on who knows how long uh, small you know, venues are going to have to be closed, but the, I think the grave concern is that uh, it's either go out of business or it's sell out to um, Wall Street-backed corporate power. And it's a real and very dangerous choice that, that you know, small venue owners are going to have to make. Well, Ron, these are all my questions. Is there anything else that that we didn't get to that you want to add or expand on? I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there about how like about how you know streaming works, and I think it's important for people to understand the power of these streaming companies because every time someone streams a song, they're making a sale, right? This is like a transaction, and the listener is essentially buying that one play of that one song, and so. That artist that the person is listening to then gets that additional portion of this finite amount of money, right? This finite pie. So it turns into the zero-sum game. And when you have really powerful actors like Spotify, for example, who is by far the largest uh, subscription streaming service in the world, steering their audiences towards certain songs, towards certain music that appears on certain popular playlists where you have certain artists uh, who are already big, already popular, already wealthy, getting 
vast majority of the streams, and so that money continues to flow to them, and it can't go anywhere else. There are only so many streams to go around. There are only so many sales to go around. So I don't know. I think it's <laughs> I, it's a tricky thing to get into, but I think it's very, very important for audiences to understand it because it's easy to look at these big platforms and say, these are just our benevolent you know, third parties that we just happen to go to so we can consume our music. But they're not. These are financial actors that have a stake in it, and um, their role is to make money and to get an even bigger slice of the pie, and that's what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, and I noticed you talked about in your article specifically the recent move by Spotify saying, you know, we will help promote your music, I believe, if you pay a higher royalty rate. Or yeah, or, or if you accept a lower a lower payment from us. Oh, that's right. That's right. A lower yeah, payment so, from yeah. yeah. You know, so basically, so these labels say, you know, well, so so the gam right the gambit the offer from Spotify, which is, I I I should start all this by saying Spotify is is unavoidable as a platform. That's what monopoly power means. You know, I think of it as the same way I think about Amazon. If you're a small business, you're trying to reach an audience, you have no choice but to be on the Amazon marketplace because everybody shops there, right? They have a 70 plus percent share of the market for so many different products, Amazon does. So if you're a small business, you, you're just you're stuck on Amazon and you will just pay whatever fees Amazon decides to charge. I think about Spotify in the exact same way. 150 million subscribers um, around the world, twice as many as Apple Music, which is its nearest subscription streaming competitor. And so you can't avoid it. So you say, okay, I have to be on Spotify. So Spotify says, okay, everybody's here. And again, you know, Spotify knows that this is a zero-sum game. There, there are a finite number of streams out there. So Spotify says, if you want some of these streams that we control in our algorithm, take a pay cut, basically, let us keep some more of the money, and we'll promote your song um, a little bit more. And the, and the sales pitch is that maybe more people will listen to your song, maybe, but Spotify can't guarantee that. All I can guarantee is that you're going to take a pay cut in exchange for this promotion, for these streams. And it's payola by any other name. It's not legally payola, because that's not what the law means. But everybody that I talked to for the story in Wired said, this is payola. And it's, and it's an exercise of market power because you cannot avoid the company as a platform. You can't avoid Spotify. And so Spotify has the power to essentially extract these concessions um, from labels in exchange for the, um, the lure, the potential for more, for more streams, for, you know, for more listens. And again, payola back in the day was when people would go to radio stations and literally pay the station to play their songs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, yeah. And that's the legal definition, right? That's, you know, when somebody, when somebody goes to a radio station or a DJ and says, here's money, put me on, I don't care if it's at noon or it's at midnight, but you're going to spin this record. That's, you know, that's payola. But this is the kind of thing that is essentially payola for a digital age by any other name. And I'll say that there is a lot of interest um, among advocates out there uh, to try to push uh, for this kind of thing to be labeled as payola in a, in a more formal way and have there be consequences for that. Now, what those consequences are, I don't know. Maybe it's um, antitrust scrutiny over the power of Spotify. Maybe it's simply 
you know, transparency. So a listener will know when a song is, um, you know, is promoted in the algorithm. Maybe there's like something that pops up before a song that says, whatever, universal music presents this, this song from this artist, whatever it is. Um, but there's a lot of, a lot of hand wringing, a lot of concern, uh, about this program. And, and look, and it, you know, here's the last thing I'll say about this. And I think this is important. There is concern, not just from the independent labels and artists and rights holders. There is concern among the majors, which, I mean, there's no, there's no clearer demonstration of Spotify's market power than when you have a company like, you know, Universal Music or Warner wringing their hands saying, I don't want to get involved with this because once we do, there's no way out. We cannot put this toothpaste back in this tube once we start with this program and we start taking um, these cuts to our to our royalties, because once we do, then someone else does, then the next label does, the next label does, and then suddenly it's a wash, and everyone starts having to take less money and less money, and it becomes a race to the bottom. This like issue, this problem, would not exist were it not for the overwhelming power of Spotify. That was my conversation with Ron Knox, who recently wrote an article in Wired titled Big Music Needs to be Broken Up to Save the Industry. If you like this conversation, I recommend the recent Sound on Vision episode titled Spotify and Streaming Transparency. That was Sound on Vision. Before we go, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, interview this podcast, and consider giving a one-time $20 donation to help support this show at kexp.org sound. Thanks for listening.